Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chanock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Ruth Setlack, who will discuss the impact of PANS, PANDAS, and Lyme disease on clinical work. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter. It's a hard thing I am with um, a lot of the autoimmune problems are not well understood. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and we're yeah. not, you know, even for ones that have been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Like different forms of arthritis and fibromyalgia, it's sort of like, well, it's almost like rule out a lot of things and then I guess it's this. You know, but people, and then sometimes there's not a lot being suggested to, to help. Do you find that some of this, once this if a child has pandas or you're looking at gut health, um, that these different suggestions, the, the families really do see progress. It really makes a difference, obviously, if, you know, if you're wanting to educate and help people with this. Because sometimes with autoimmune things, I feel like it feels a little, it's such a soft science. I feel badly for people. It, it just seems yeah. like, well, we think you have this. You might not, but probably you do. But we think this will help, but it might not. And these are the new drugs, but they sort of help, but they don't. You know? <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? There's definitely a certain amount of that going on. Luckily, this is crossing many um, different specialties, and we yeah. have Barry's researching it because it's impacting the brain and not just the body. Yes. Immunologists, immunologists, we have um, functional medicine doctors and and other researchers who are really curious about this because they think um, we do want to find answers and we're finding it so much more prevalent. I think originally when pandas first came out, it was thought to be extremely rare. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the widened scope and um, what we're finding more and more kids were, are actually having some kind of medical cost to, the, to these um, mental health challenges. And because of the, we're realizing the scope is so much bigger than originally thought. Fortunately, I think there's a lot of research interest. Um, and it isn't, it, you know, it isn't well researched enough, but I feel like it is maybe less nebulous than fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue. Um, and even those areas now are very linked to things like gut health, immunity, uh, immune function, diet, you know, a, a very scope of lifestyle choices mm -hmm. uh, that are impacting the body and the brain. Mm -hmm. But I feel like if we can find uh, specialists that's the hard part, right? Mm -hmm. There are doctors who are now becoming much more well-versed in this. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the challenges for doctors like a pediatrician who might want to explore this is the research is really still limited in terms of what we know and um, symptomatology even. For example, acute onset. We now know that many of these children don't actually present with acute onset. And it can be complicated if you already have something like an autism diagnosis 
or ADHD or sensory processing disorders, and this happens afterwards, then the symptoms become more complicated to discern from other comorbid um, diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we're, but we're finding that it isn't always acute onset or that it can be onset really early in a child's life and then just look developmental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel like there's a lot of, uh, if you're finding doctors that will do a wide scope of clinical analysis, and that's one of the things I think I would suggest when I am collaborating with doctors. It used to be they would just do a strep test. If you had strep, they'd send, give you some antibiotics and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And it was this kind of, you know, let's throw up some darts and see what sticks kind of approach. But we're now knowing that you can do um, much more intensive analysis around um, doing an MRI or an EEG to see what is happening in the brain, doing uh, autoimmune markers, checking immune function. And so the clinical markers become wider and it's still clinical diagnosis. There's not definite markers, but I think much more clinical markers that can guide someone in the diagnosis and treatment, um, differentiating between autoimmunity, which is treated one way, and just an infection in the central nervous system or inflammation, which might be treated another way. So another thing I want to ask, and forgive me if this is a silly question, because I, I don't know a lot about this topic. I'm happy to be learning myself. Sometimes I hear more chiropractors may be thinking about these, or naturopath or homeopathic, you know, so are there other, um, disciplines and professionals who, who are also thinking this way? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, in some, some respects, we're seeing these tradi more traditional neurologists or immunologists or psychiatrists, right, who are having to kind of step out of their comfort zone and learn about things like um, immune function and the impact on mental health or um, or gut health or other of these, um, these uh, related issues that have traditionally been in a more functional medicine realm. And so it's kind of cool to see this um, expansion, I think, of our thinking um, mm -hmm. in the Western world here. Stanford has a clinic now that specializes in this and it has a multidisciplinary cl clinic where they're researching at the same time they're treating. Um, and that's exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I think the other thing that is so helpful about uh, Stanford and some of these other um, institutions that have a lot of credibility that are coming on board and doing research is that um, it isn't just staying in this realm of um, alternative medicine. Mm -hmm. It really is um, starting to become something that is that we're starting to have some answers about. Not all of them, not enough, but we have more answers because of some funding that we've gotten from these larger institutions that have a lot of credibility behind them, and they're taking a very um, structured research approach to looking at these, mm -hmm. these for kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's really helpful. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And another thing I'm wondering 
and I don't want to diminish the specialization that would be needed to treat this, but what's also going through my mind is some of the things that could help with this, would you say they're just good things to be doing anyway? Yeah, absolutely. And like, you diet. know, diet, for example. Yeah. Diet, exercise, and yeah, things that are good for the body or good for the brain. Right, right. <laughs> And there are a lot of kind of basic supplements that people can do, like omega-3s. We know we don't get enough of those in the diet. Mm -hmm. And those are anti-inflammatory, really good for the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, magnesium, nice and calming, treats depression, we now know through research, um, but can help anxiety um, and sleep. You know, sleep can be another challenge for these kids for a variety mm -hmm. of issues. And so things that, um, that parents can go to that aren't, you know, major drugs or need a lot of diagnosis can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. But I would say for sure, diet and exercise can be big. And, and things like occupational therapy that are already working on improving neurology, uh, some movement-based um, exercises that do we know change the brain in positive ways mm -hmm. um, are very supportive along with the mental health uh, things that we can do as practitioners mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I think um, movement um, is, mm -hmm. I'm a big person into exercise and movement and things like that and you know there's research that um, high levels of activity can work as well for depression as some antidepressants and the effectiveness does not taper off as quickly. So, um, so I think, you know, we're talking about two things. There are going to be very specific things that need to address, be addressed like PANDAS and some of, you know, really significant gut health, but perhaps we also need to be thinking more holistically. You know, I worked with a family last week and I said, you know, I just really feel like your daughter needs sunshine and movement, <laughs> which seems kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but I mean, she was not moving at all, like yeah. Yeah. barely getting out of her bed and she yeah. was coming out of a significant depression. Of course, I understand that. But um, I also feel like some of these really basic things were, are, are being overlooked. And engagement, because when we have these challenges, it's really normal for kids to withdraw mm -hmm. to, or to get hyper-focused on things like electronics. Mm -hmm. that are very isolating. They can be um, supportive in a way and that it can be regulating for the child. Mm -hmm. But it can... Um, it cannot be great for the brain and it can also um, reduce a kind of a sense of vitality for life, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need connection. We need movement. We need sunshine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, we know that these things do lots of research already. We know that these things are good for, good for our mental health and good for our bodies. Right. And, you know, can all be interrelated and so we have to try to look at the bigger picture and not just our sliver you know that we're focused on yes. so i'm wondering if you were doing a talk to all different therapists which in a way you sort of are um what you know what are some things you really would want our listeners um therapists and we have parents too and others you know uh, you know, three or four really take home things like 
that, you know, this is what you might be doing with screening or these are things to yeah. be thinking about. What's on your mind in that regard? Yeah, I think that that's an important thing because um, I, I would say initially if, if we can keep these types of causes just in the back of our mind as potentials. Okay. That we know that there's a, a mind-body connection. Mm -hmm. If we don't ignore um, things that could be not just medical in terms of disorders, but as you said, also things that could contribute to health. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, keep these in mind when we're working with families. I think it would be really important. Um, and I think when we see things like, again, history that doesn't match up with the presentation, kids who are not making progress, um, families who seem to have done a lot of treatment and aren't making progress. But also I would say that it's important for differential diagnosis, even when the history would cause symptoms, because we know, for example, that trauma has a direct effect on the immune system and on health. Mm -hmm. and, and not to forget that, um, that when we have kids who even have a trauma or adoption or attachment issues, that there can still be these things in, in the history or in the presentation that are, that are impeding progress. Um, so that if we aren't seeing progress, we don't go to a place of defense of blaming the family or the child. And we start to keep our mind open about other possibilities, these medical ideas. Yeah. So, um, maintaining curiosity and also ongoing assessment. You know, I think yeah. sometimes we think, okay, we did the assessment, da, 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 and that a good clinician of any kind, medical uh, therapist, ongoing assessment, like always having different diagnostics in our mind as, as time goes on and things unfold, not, you know, we figured this out and now we're going to treat the thing we see. Absolutely. And I think when you see like a long laundry list of symptoms and people have, you know, that alphabet soup. I would start looking medical. Um, and the other thing I would say is that as mental health professionals, even if there is a medical cause that ends up being there that we can treat and should be really helpful for the child and the family, it's important to know that we can still be very supportive in many ways from mental health uh, field in terms of supporting family dynamics. Um, in the midst of these challenges, you know, hard kids, there's a lot of behavioral challenges there and parents are struggling and they need support mm -hmm. we can have even downstream mental health challenges kids whose behavior can't be controlled and goes against you know what they would want to do mm -hmm. we can, you know we can have extreme temper tantrums aggression oppositionality and then the kid has great remorse but can't control these behaviors and so mm -hmm. we can get depression we can have you know a lot of negative self-beliefs that get created within the child because they don't want to do this. Or I would say the same thing in terms of what we see with uh, school performance deterioration, right? I used to be able to do math. Now my brain just can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I have all kinds of sensory difficulties being in school now. Um, and that causes a lot of challenges for kids uh, even in t attentional challenges. And these can cause a lot of um, 
just self-esteem challenges in a child. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot we can still do. Right. So that knowing that if it's confirmed to be related to something medical, there is still a role for, for clinicians, therapists to support a family through that in various ways or help with some of the fallout behaviors of yes. it. Yes. And so, you know, I would say a lot of the trauma treatments that we would do, you know, in terms of supporting, calming the nervous system, helping parents, you know, who may have done a great job with co-regulation in infancy, go back and do more, Mm -hmm. um, creating those sense of safety for a child so we don't get some of those other downstream sequelae, Mm -hmm. um, and and collaborating with school professionals, helping their understanding of how to, you know, create neuroception for this child and uh, and support support that sensory system in the school mm-hmm. environment. You know, we have that knowledge, and those um, treatment strategies and support strategies are really helpful in these situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say much more so than say behavioral strategies. Yes. Yes. And I love the statement you just made, even a parent who did a really good job with co-regulation, because sometimes I feel like uh, parents might feel like when we say a child is struggling with that, I mean, we have various points in our life where I feel like some of the bottom falls out on us on some of their skills that we previously had, you know, so it doesn't mean you never did this or you did this wrong. The child just needs um, an enriched care in this regard at this point of time because of A, B, and C. Yeah. More um, intense and intentional focus. Yes. Helping that nervous system recover in a positive way. Yes, yes. Well, this has been a really good talk. I really appreciate your time, Ruth. And so much of what you said is so wonderful. You know, a reminder to to, to keep thinking broader. You know, I keep thinking, you know, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything, you know, is a nail. <laughs> that old saying, you know, to think more broadly, but I also am really appreciating your um, compassion for families, you know, that, hey, 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 let's not just assume, you know, it's a resistant family or a family that's done things that they're not telling us or, or something like that. You know, I really hear that in your voice. It's such an important voice to hear. So, um, just to wrap up, I don't know if, you know, you would want to direct people to your website or if you do any training on these kinds of things or talks sometimes, or, you know, if there is one or you know, maybe a book or two or podcast that you think, hey, if you want to hear more, here's a good place to start. Whatever comes to your mind with all your experience and, and the study you've been doing with this. Yeah, actually, there are some resources even on Amazon.com. There's a couple books out there for working with school professionals and helping the school understand these and how to support um, kids in the classroom. So if you Google pandas in school, you'll find those books on Amazon. And there's some specifically, um, there's some that have stories of families that have been through this. Um, Less about treatment necessarily, but more around, you know, what does it look like? How can families um, 
support their kids, find treatment. There are some resources um, on Amazon. If you mm-hmm. just pandas is, is more common than pans because it was the original diagnosis. Um, there's also pandas network um, that is a website dedicated to supporting families and giving lots of information about pans and pandas. Um, and again, I don't want to forget about mentioning Lyme disease, especially depending on certain geographic uh, places in the country where Lyme disease is very prevalent. It can also present in these same ways. Mm-hmm. Very often clinicians aren't used to thinking about um, infections like that, but there's um, ILADS, um, I-L-A-D-S is an organization um, geared to, a website geared to um, educate on Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of um, research articles that they can search online that are really prevalent and you can read for free. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes. Um, well, and, and do you do education? If, a, if somebody wanted to bring you in to talk about this, is there a way they could contact you directly? Yeah, I have a website. It's playconnectthrive.com. And uh-huh. I can do education for other mental health professionals or families around this. Um, and I uh, treat kids um, who are dealing with this and support families as well. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today on this really important topic that, you know, we just need more people talking about. And like you said, having an awareness of this. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Karen, for uh, being willing to bring this out for people. Yes. All right. Goodbye for now. Thank you. Okay. Wow. That was such a great chat with Ruth. And I do want to share just real quickly uh, a couple things that she mentioned after we ended the interview and we're no longer recording, but she would like me to share that there is a uh, Pandas Facebook group um, where people could look for that and find that and learn about this more and parents could interact maybe with other parents whose children are dealing with this. And another thing that Ruth shared with me was that in her practice, she sees close to 75% um, of her kids may have something related to some of these issues. So, you know, I said, do you see like 10 or 20%? And she said, no, it's much more. Now we have to put that in the context of the types of kids that she sees. um, And that she's also probably somewhat known for understanding this aspect. So could draw in people like that. But I did think it was worth mentioning how prevalent this can be. So great to have all you listeners here today. And I look forward to when we and connect again on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site at www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is part two in a two-part series with Ruth Setlack so be sure to check out part one if you haven't already listened to it. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to the Knowledge Center at chadoc.com.
We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.